Hello, my name is Julia Streets and welcome to Diversity Podcast, talking about equality, inclusion and diversity in financial services. On the podcast, we seek to shine a light on positive progress, call out areas requiring further focus and offer lots of ideas to help drive change. And before we get started today, I just want to take a moment to thank our friends at City AM for their continued support of Diversity Podcast. Publishing and promoting both our episodes and our supporting blog series so their readers can stay at the top of the very latest diversity and inclusion debate. Now, you may want to check out City AM's own podcast called The City View for all the latest news and opinion from the city because we at Diversity Podcast are huge fans. So, thank you to City AM. Now today I'm delighted to be joined by Norma Gillespie and Manisha Patel and let me tell you a bit about our guests. Norma Gillespie is the CEO of Resource Solutions, specialising in recruitment outsourcing and in her position on the Group Operating Board, Norma is responsible for both setting the strategy and direction of the global operations and also the management of the on-site operations and international service centres. Now, she brings more than 20 years of experience in recruitment and advisory services and actively supports equality, diversity and inclusion, having launched and chaired a global ED&I forum. She is also involved in a number of initiatives, including the Rejoin programme, supporting those who have had a career break back into the workplace. The creation of strategic partnerships for underrepresented groups and also the goal of a 50-50 supply chain for the business by 2025. So Norma, it's wonderful to have you on the show. Thank you, it's great to be here. Thank you, Julian. And we're delighted to be joined by a second stellar guest, Manisha Patel. She's an inclusion and culture advisor, non-executive director and an executive coach and has worked in both the private and the public sector in a diverse range of professional roles. Now her consulting work ranges from advising boards, large-scale private and public sector organisations to also coaching grassroots community leaders. She is also the co-founder of the Female Executive Mentoring Programme that connects leaders across the corporate, public and non-profit sectors with diverse senior female mentees. And she also collaborates with community partners to develop initiatives to address health inequalities and to increase community integration. So, Manisha, Welcome to the show. It's great to have you on. It's wonderful to join you on the Diversity podcast today, Julia. Now, I know you're both exceptionally busy, so I'm dying to hear what you're focused on right now. So, Norman, let me start with you. What are you focused on right now? Thanks, Julia. Well, I'm sure looking at the news and what's out there at the minute, we're experiencing huge volumes in terms of heightened recruitment activity at the minute and what's dubbed the uh, Great Resignation. So, What I'm using that opportunity to do is really focusing our business to see what we can do in terms of raising opportunities and raising the bar and to support inclusive recruitment practices and opportunities for both females, but also underrepresented candidates. So Edie and I, as she said, is at the forefront of what we do. I suppose that leads me on to Rejoin, which is our return to work programme. And whilst it's not exclusively just focused on women, the facts are that women have been, I suppose, disproportionately hit by the pandemic in terms of employment pay and opportunities so what we're trying to do with rejoin is support talented and experienced individuals who've taken a career break 
whether it's through having a family a sabbatical and bring them back into the world of work and bring them back in in full-time employment not interim and through a returnship because we do believe that you know individuals have the skills and the potential to be able to hit the ground running so I suppose that's the unique part of what we're trying to do is bring people back full-time and also we've created a community online as well so individuals have the opportunity to talk to each other and then we do coaching through that as well to get people supported for the interviews and then also through the back end of the program to make sure that once they have landed in roles that it's what they expected and if there's anything that comes up that we're able to support them through that as well and then as you mentioned before the other big piece of work for me is what we call our accelerate academy so it's really looking at the skill sets of what's needed from our clients and also supporting underrepresented individuals and talent pools to be able to train them up over either it's a nine or 12 week program to get them the opportunity to get back into the workplace or where they've not had the opportunity to maybe pay for education. So uh, we've had two cohorts so far that have gone into the workplace and it's been great to see sort of the, you know, how they've progressed in terms of the companies they've gone in and the skills they've been able to use within those organisations. So it's really about identifying the needs of the clients and also the candidates and then developing solutions for them. Amazing. There's so much of that we're going to get into in this episode today. And I particularly you must be so proud to watch these two cohorts come through and really shine. Absolutely. It's been fantastic. Really great to see. So, Manisha, let me ask you the same question. So what are you focused on at the moment? So Julia, my focus is wider. So I'd like to focus on systems. So looking at our whole society when it comes to inclusion and integration. So for me, it's about implementing at different levels. It's multi-pronged. So a lot of my advisory work uh, and consultant work is with boards across private sector, public sector, not-for-profit, and also with my non-executive director role, sort of supporting local government organisations. I'm very passionate about inequalities with regards to health and health inequalities. I have a health background. Also that socioeconomic inequalities. So really thinking about local communities and grassroots. How do we actually start building a society where people in communities start integrating together? And for me, that's really important that we bring all of our worlds together because we are all part of the same society. And we need to break down some of these barriers and learn to accept each other, but actually find out about who lives around us, who works around us. How else are we going to progress with diversity and inclusion in its truest sense? I'm also a co-founder of the Female Executive Mentoring Programme. And for me, this is about how do we start influencing boards, both in terms of gender diversity and race diversity. So we have a diverse cohort of senior female leaders who are very talented who need that support from external mentors to really think about how they can push to the next level. Again, I feel like bringing so many different elements and groups into my work with diversity and inclusion really brings a sort of more holistic approach to how we think about this area. The other thing I'm really focusing on is governance and accountability, very relevant in the current times that we live in. And for me, it's key to think about how do we empower people, both who work in our organizations, but also in our communities and how they start speaking up and how they start holding leaders to account so that there is some progress with diversity and inclusion. Amazing. And it's when you begin to unpick a lot of that, it's, it's it not only it's about supporting 
the journey and the pipeline, hearing you both of you talk about that, but also the, the support models around it in terms of the coaching. But I love the whole piece about governance and accountability and actually encouraging people to find their voice, to speak truth to power, which is incredibly important. Fantastic. What a great way to start the show. I'd love to get into, if we may, the subject of returners specifically. And Norma, let me come to you first of all. I'm just quite intrigued, and I'm sure the audience is too, about this whole concept of returners. We know what it is. It's basically about people naturally. The moment of returning is generally tends to be when people have left to have a family. But I would love to get your thoughts about how long has this concept of return has been around. Also, do you have any insights on when people are most likely to leave the financial services industry? So Goldman Sachs were the first financial services organisation to offer returnships. That was back in 2008. And then it took a little while for other companies to get on board with it. So, you know, by 2014, there were six organisations that were looking at returnships. And, you know, by 2019, those numbers were going up to 50 across more than 80 employers. But I think during the pandemic, that's where we've really seen, you know, those numbers dropping through the pandemic. And it's a real shame because I suppose the appetite for the programmes is absolutely there. But I suppose they're not seen in those terms as being business critical during that period. But now, obviously, we've come through or we're coming the other side of this crisis. And you are starting to see such a gap in terms of individuals that are able to go into roles and the heightened number of open roles we've got across globally at the minute. So what we have seen is graduate salaries have started to raise in that instance, but we're not seeing the same in terms of the returnship programme. So I think this is a real opportunity for organisations because it's a real buyer's market and there is more opportunity now to really focus on these programmes and get individuals back into the workplace because there's definitely the appetite there. In terms of, I suppose, uh, your question around when they're most likely to leave, there's numbers of pieces of research out there, but I know a survey by PwC, which was called Seeing is Believing, you know, it talked about the fact that individuals, you know, people started their careers in financial services, you know, at that equal level, males and females. But then by the time it got to middle management, you started to see women's progression started to fall back at that point, And men were outweighing women by almost three to one by middle management. And in terms of, I suppose, that career advancement as well from that Gen Z population, the same was seen in terms of one of the Deloitte's pieces of work I was looking at around women are 24% less likely than their male peers to get their first promotion, even though they requested it at a similar rate. And then women of colour were even more disadvantaged through that survey, with it being 34% less likely to make their first promotion. And alternatively, you know, if I look at sort of our US research as well you know McKinsey one of their pieces of research talked about the fact that it is changing in terms of financial services but one in five individuals within that female side were reaching the c-suite positions so there's definitely a real glass ceiling there in terms of that needs to be cracked in financial services and then on top of that you've also got the cultural aspects of it as well in terms of working at home and offering greater flexibility around career progression and well-being initiatives as well so i think there's definitely opportunity for organizations to use this as an advantage and to start to bring people back into the workplace and when, as you say, when the fight for talent is so fierce and it feels like it's only ever going to intensify in some ways, it's a talent pool under our noses. I wonder if I could ask you another quick sort of follow up question, which is for those who do come back in, the returners who do come back, 
what particularly inspires them to return? I guess my question is, for organisations that are listening, what are the great things they can do to attract that talent? So it's interesting. So I can talk from our returner groups in terms of what they said. And what they're saying is that they go back into potentially financial services because that's where they've come out of and that's what they know. They also see those organisations as being more flexible now than they used to be with good opportunities in terms of career progression and wellbeing initiatives as well. So they're some of the key things they're looking for in terms of the flexibility, the wellbeing initiatives and the opportunity to progress as well. And we have seen, even across our portfolio of clients, we've seen returnships grow now in the US, India, Switzerland. So it's there to be taken back. Do you think there's probably still a challenge in terms of being quite specific in terms of the skill set? So that makes it more challenging for other individuals from different sectors to be able to return. And of course, in a highly regulated industry, you need to have talent that understands and respects not only the governance and the structures, but also the regulatory complexities and the application to a particular role as well. So again, you know, it's wonderful to hear that if people return because they came from the industry, they return because they believe their perception has shifted about being welcome, that actually it's perfect to have that pool of talent come in. Really interesting. Thank you for your thoughts on that. Really, really helpful to explore that in some detail as well. Now, Manisha, I mean, you mentioned in earlier remarks your role as a coach, a guide, a trainer, an advisor as well. Listening to Norma's remarks, what, what do you observe around returners? So I actually have to sort of agree with what Norma said about the intersectionality element with why people leave and why they return. The glass ceiling or the reinforced concrete ceiling, as I call it, for women of colour in particular, It's much lower when you talk about middle management and when you talk about opportunities. And I think it's very hard to then feel focused or motivated to continue working in a sector or profession where you're not feeling valued. It erodes your confidence and it does create that feeling of exclusion and frustration. And I think it's also key to note as well, the intersectionality for women of colour in terms of there's definitely a class element also in terms of how you may have other protected characteristics which are impeding your ability to progress from a middle management level. I think there's something that we've noticed from coaching and mentoring with returners. So many of the senior female leaders that have applied for our FEM mentoring program are really in a transition phase. So they've applied for quite a unique program where they're going to be mentored by somebody outside of their profession, outside of their sector, so a completely different circle and sphere. And for me, that's something about exploring opportunities. We've had potential returners who have worked in systems such as the public sector, where we know it's been very pressurised for the past 18 months. Think about actually where can they come back to if they've already started in a corporate sector environment, in a financial services environment. And having that mentor and having that network to sort of comfort you back into how it is in the private sector is really helpful because it's daunting. If you've been in other sectors and you want to return, it's really daunting to think, how am I going to fit in? How am I going to learn what I've missed out on? And also adapt to, I guess, the unwritten rules, the things that people don't tell you about when you're returning into a system or an organisation. When you think about the move from sector to sector, A, how wonderful to have a mentoring support mechanism around you, but actually often it's the unsaid, the unwritten rules and the culture that played the biggest impact about why people would move or not. But again, I think if there's a 
opportunity for the industry to welcome in others who have been in the sector, gone somewhere else and come back. It's another dimension to returners as well. Really, really interesting to consider as a potential talent pool as well. And what I'd love to do is now just kind of move the conversation one kind of cog shift on, if, if we may describe it that way, which is thinking about this journey from returners to leaders, because it's all well and good to welcome people back into organisations, but are we supporting their ascension? If you want to describe it that way. Norma, I'd love to come to you, really, just as you observe the pathway of leaders. If you have any remarks about what you see in the financial services industry, and also any notable patterns about women returning to work in the industry and then their journeys onwards. Yeah, and I think just in terms of, I suppose, if I just touch on the reasons they're leaving from the, the research, first of all, it's more general to wider sectors than just financial services. So the first we touched on before, motherhood, and it's quite interesting, a, a piece of research that the Princeton University looked at it actually negated some of our original thoughts around that when people actually have more children, it means that they would leave with the fact that they have more children. However, this piece of research was actually contrary to that, that it said that most people that leave actually leave after their first child and they make a life decision at that point, which does actually mean that there's more opportunity there because if you are having more children and you're leaving at that life moment and you are coming back within a shorter period, you should really be able to return at the similar life moment and skill set as where you left the industry. So I think this is really where you know the likes of financial services could really focus and capitalize on that pattern of return. Then some of the other pieces of research that we've seen from our returners are you know obviously COVID which everyone knows it has had such a fundamental challenge and disproportionate effect of women you know the Deloitte's 2021 report found that 80% of women said their workloads had increased because of the pandemic and also with the greater workload responsibilities and that those boundaries shifted between I suppose work and home life as well I think the thing that we found from our research and our returners was that what they were also saying was they felt that it also affected the relationships with their line managers in terms of working at home and not having that ability to, I suppose, be more face-to-face with their line managers and be available and be considered for promotions as well. And then the third one's obviously the menopause. And I know, you know, Standard Chartered and Forset Society has done a big piece of research on that, which is really interesting because it actually looks, if you look at the data we've talked about so far, you've got women leaving before middle management. And then the women that are moving up the ladder, once they get to menopause you know 25% of participants said it made them more likely to leave their job when they hit menopause 22% said it makes them want to retire early as well and 47% said they were less likely to even apply for a promotion so you're sort of being hit at different age groups through the work life as well so I think there's lots of work that can be done I know a number of companies have already put policies in place and are starting to really focus on that as well But in terms of, I know, you know, you mentioned about other sectors, what we are seeing is tech. So we're definitely seeing individuals from other sectors within technology are finding it easier to return and return into financial services. And we're also seeing, I suppose, more individuals who are from that more infrastructure type environment, whether it's finance, HR or more transferable skills that are open and willing and I suppose being considered for those roles as well. 
I'm really staggered by your remarks about the menopause and actually people's decisions and how it influences their journey to the top. I'd say that's probably one of the conversations I've heard most about in the last two or three months has been around. And in fact, we will be planning an episode about the menopause exactly to that point. I'm, that data is really shocking to think that through. But also your remarks about the tech industry and actually the potential for bringing people in and the reasons why they leave the industry as well. So Manisha, again, you know, when we think about coaching and mentoring, it's clearly very important. I know that's what you focus on as well. I'd love to hear some examples from you, if you would, about how mentorship has actually helped people overcome some of those barriers, whether it's confidence in applying for the next job or thinking about whether or not you're going to stay within an organisation. But those coming back in, particularly moving into new roles back into the industry. Absolutely. So there's a range of examples. I think find one of the biggest issues to tackle initially when somebody comes into a, an organisation from returning is that piece around the confidence. And I find there's a few different ways you can do that. I think building in mentoring and some style of mentoring or coaching into the onboarding programme is key. But I think there's also something about the peer support. Is there already a network of people that have been returners, that have shared experiences that you can get support from and that you can speak with? I think also what I tend to do through coaching, Julia, is I coach managers and leaders to think much more holistically. So if somebody's returning back to your sector, back to work from a period of time of not being in the role or industry, how can you be much more inclusive think about what they've learned what experiences they can bring from their time away from their life how you can value their diversity and uniqueness and also not to make them feel othered so there's quite a range of things to consider when you're bringing people back into an organization I also advise my coaches and people on our program to think about developing a personal board have you got a group of trusted colleagues and friends who share some experiences with you, but also have a diversity of thinking that you can counsel as your personal board. So you have a support mechanism to deal with the challenges that you may face as you return into an organization, especially at a more senior level where it can be very intimidating. So there's a number of ways that you can access support and make it work for you. But I think it's really important to have a space, a safe space, to be able to sound what you're experiencing and feeling. My sort of second piece of advice would be try to, as a coach or a mentor, as somebody who's supporting a returner, try to get people to think much more with a choices approach. So if they are sort of struggling with the elements of returning back to work, instead of being reactive, what are their choices? What are the options? What can they do about it? Who can they speak to? And how can they make the situation work for them or not work for them, depending on what they decide to go with? So that can also be helpful in terms of how you use a coach and a mentor. And do you find that some of those who have returned, I just wonder if there's an opportunity here, actually. There's an opportunity for those who have returned also to play a mentoring role to others and also for new starters coming into the industry. I'm just thinking about these young women, not just a gender perspective for the reasons we've just described, but the young talents coming into an organisation who may be looking ahead and going, well, I'm seeing a drop off. So I'm guessing that's probably my pathway too. Absolutely. I think there's so much wisdom and experience that can be shared. And I think that benefits both new starters and people at the early stages of their career. 
but also new returners. So developing that peer support network. When I was leading and managing teams, I worked in an industry in healthcare where there are a lot of female staff. And when they were returning to work from maternity leave, for example, it was really important that we had a peer support network where returners supported each other with the day-to-day frustrations that can happen when you're returning from juggling everything in life in terms of your family priorities. And I think there's something that can be quite self-managed and self-led by returners, thinking about how they support each other and how they have a space to just offer that shoulder or that listening ear when it's required, because we know that there'll be daily challenges. I think Norma touched on a great point about working from home and how you actually access support. And so, again, it's really thinking with a more innovative mindset about how we build this into our virtual world of working and still get the support that you need. So let me pick up then on that point about some of the challenges, some of the barriers, if you like. And Norma, let me start with you in terms of what focus do you pay on supporting the progression of women as leaders and also on boards at the highest level when you think about intersectionality? And then, of course, we talk about, you know, women of colour, but also other attributes as well, women with disabilities, neurodiverse women and also introverts as well. Yeah, so from a resource solutions perspective, we've spent a lot of time on this, obviously, through the recruitment process, looking at best practice. So I commissioned our in-house innovation team to create an end-to-end audit, which we've actually put our own business through as well. So what that really focuses on is all elements in terms of the socioeconomic, ethnicity, LGBTQ+, disability and what they did is they looked at 77 different touch points and the recruitment results were quite shocking actually in terms of the changes that need to be made through that recruitment process and you know one of the key things that stood out for me specifically were around women of colour and also women who are more senior as well within the organisation so The data was really interesting in terms of what came out of that. And especially if you look at how individuals are disadvantaged, it would be things that you don't even think about in terms of how people actually log on to do a recruitment process. And if you look at ethnicity, for example, Android phones, you can't go through a recruitment process on an Android phone. So you've taken out a large chunk of individuals that can't apply for roles to start with. And looking at that framework as well, we also looked at that third party exec level as well. And that really stood out as well, because then you had a third party bias as well, because they were recruiting for executives that they felt were right for that organisation. So we found that there was quite a lot of bias in that process as well. And that's why one of the actions that I've done off the back of that is created our 50-50 supply chain. So we've actually, you know, our target was to get there by 2025, but we pushed it up the agenda and we've actually just completed it now. So half of the organisations we work with are minority owned within our supply chain now so that we do have a more well-rounded candidate group as well. So I've been really pleased with the results so far and also from a client perspective, we've got large FS organisations that have completely changed their whole process on the back of the results as well. It does show that when, I suppose, the results are there and individuals at senior levels can see what changes need to be made, they are making those changes. So that's been really pleasing. I suppose one question that then comes to mind is what in this conversation about intersectionality is we mustn't exclude men in the discussion. What are your thoughts on that? I completely agree. And I must admit, when we first did our rejoin launch, I 
I was probably quite remiss in terms of thinking who was going to be on that programme. And there was a number of males that were on that programme. And that made me think then as well, goodness me, we need to make sure that, you know, we've got this written in the right way, that we've got the right kind of dynamics in terms of the interview process as well. And what we've seen with the returners that are males are in our programme now. Paternity has changed as well. And people are taking advantage of that, which is fantastic. But also, I think from a US perspective specifically we had a number of individuals that have contacted us who want to be part of the program because they've had to care for individuals as through covid and through from a healthcare perspective as well so it's absolutely focused on everyone who wants to return to the workforce but it's definitely been more of an eye-opener for us than I thought it would have been when we first put the program together so we need to make sure as you say that everybody is included within that process. Yeah, and that's like the very zeitgeist of what the reality is right now. As you say, around paternity, about people thinking about having been at home during COVID and their roles and responsibilities in, in the home, and then the balance with partners, whatever their partners may be, or indeed if single parenting too. Really wonderful to hear your thoughts on that. Manisha, let me, let me bring you here. You've been listening sort of very patiently while we've been exploring this subject as well. What advice are you giving when people are thinking about those barriers they have to overcome? And also, I'd love you if you to make some remarks about the importance of allies. We've talked about mentors. Love to hear your views on the importance of allies as well. Absolutely. I think for barriers, definitely it's important to think about the support, but also to think about how much of the barriers are self-limiting and how much are sort of organisational and systemic barriers and where you can raise that if you've got a fantastic organisation like Norma's who's really looking into that and where you can flag some of these barriers. In terms of allyship, I think allyship has to go beyond allyship into advocacy as well. That's really important. Allies have to be active in what they're doing. And so, you know, an example of that is it goes beyond self-development. It's about how do you use your position, your privilege, your platform to uplift others? And if there are barriers, how can you call something out? How can you call something in? But also how can you sometimes stand back and offer opportunities to those who you're not seeing in a room, to those whose voices are not around the table. So for me, there's that continuous dialogue that an ally has to have to look at where the lack of representation is. And that will include the returners, because you may be looking at eight specific age groups, women of color, men, as we've mentioned, people who have been carers, people from different socioeconomic backgrounds. And so that active allyship is a continuous process where you bring in people who are not in the room, but also create opportunities. And can I ask you a follow-up question, which is I'd love to know what advice do you give for those who are keen to identify allies, however the allies might be perhaps a little reluctant? Thank you for the question, actually, Julia. I think there's something quite interesting happening there if the allies are reluctant. I would say if you're looking to find an ally, it's almost about observing who you feel would actually have the confidence and the ability to be an ally and advocate and speak on your behalf. And sometimes that means attending meetings, attending events, if you do have some in-person events, and seeing who's actually there and who's able to use the voice and challenge when you're thinking about diversity and inclusion, because there'll always be somebody. So observation would be my first point. I think it's very difficult to ask somebody who's reluctant and they may not feel safe to be an ally because they're not confident enough to challenge. So just to be mindful of that as well. And I think there's this really fascinating sort of dynamic of change at the moment, which is the attributes of an enlightened leader. 
and the appreciation of not only thinking about your hiring practices, your managing practices, your communication, and all of those executive presence attributes, but also to be thinking about your active, I love the way you describe that, by the way, your active kind of allyship that turns also into advocacy as well. Fantastic. Well, listen, that's a great moment to bring in Cynthia, who has some research to support today's discussion. According to Return to Work specialists, the Women Returners, their UK returner market data recorded that in 2014, there were only three returnships across three employers in the UK. However, in 2020, there were 28 returnships recorded across 32 employers. That's promising progress in the right direction. Thank you, as always, to Cynthia Akinsanya for her research. And if you do want to find the research, you can go to our website, www.diversecitypodcast.com. And you can also there sign up for early notifications of future recordings and our wonderful newsletter called DENI that caught our eye. So you get the very latest thinking and reporting straight into your inbox. Do follow us, please, on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Diversity Podcast is available on Bright Talk and all good podcast channels. And by the way, we'd love a rating because it does all help to promote our wonderful guests and the show. So listen, I'm really intrigued when we talk about mental programs is let's delve a little bit deeper. Talk to me about the construct of the mental program, but also I'm really keen to hear about the impact that it's had. Manisha, tell us more. Right. Yes. So the mentoring program is quite unique in terms of it's a self-serve program. You do not need any sign off by your manager organization. Our mentees apply and they explain why they want a mentor from outside of their sector, but also you know, what their career goals are. We then connect them up with a board level mentor from outside of their sector. It's up to them to then be autonomous and develop that relationship. So it's very unique to them in terms of how they progress with that. We also offer a range of workshops and varied networking opportunities. We check in with them sort of halfway during the program and the impact has been just immense. We've been so surprised by how positive the outcomes have been for our first cohort, which was in 2020. We've seen people progress and bloom both personally and professionally. So you can just see the change in the confidence, but also that thinking about transferable skills. And again, it applies to some of the returners, thinking about how they can take transferable skills from previous professions and sectors, from work, from life experience into new areas. But also, you know, from my own personal experience, Julia, having a mentor who's really senior, very accomplished to tell me that I can sit on a board or that I can be in these roles that I never imagined it, it really is a game changer. And Norma, I'd love to hear it from your point of view, because I understand you've been both through the programme and you are a mentor. I wonder if I could ask you a supplementary question, which is what advice would you give to people who are thinking about offering their services as a mentor? about what they must pay attention to. Because quite often I hear stories about mentors going, you know, yes, I'd love to be a mentor. It's a big old tick on my CV to say that I'm a mentor. But actually it feels to me like there's not only a call for engagement, but a degree of discipline as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the programme's fantastic. And what really stood out for me was the transparency as well. And the fact that there was real allies on the course I found. And there was a number of executives that were really bought into the programme as well. So the transparency, the fact that having 
allies is just so important. And I think mentorship's great and it goes so far, but it's actually turning for me those mentors into sponsors as well, because that's the key that's missing. It's got to be that they're actually helping individuals through the company using their networks. And these individuals, especially, you know, Manisha and Kate's course, they are senior board individuals. They have got the ability to make a difference to people's lives. So I think it's wherever you can leverage that opportunity, I would absolutely recommend that people do and it was interesting on the course because a couple of people said but I want to get there in my own right and that's fantastic as well but it's just so tough in these times that you know I would just advise anyone to take the opportunity where they can. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, you know, a wonderful sponsor is the one who will advocate for you when you're not in the room. It's been a fantastic conversation. I've got one last final question for you. I'm going to ask you to respond to this quite quickly, if you would, but it is nevertheless very important, which is these are interesting times ahead. And I am deeply concerned that actually the conversation about DE&I will fall down the board agenda when actually should remain high. Give us your compelling reason why diversity, equity and inclusion must remain high on the boardroom agenda. Manisha, I'm going to come to you first. OK, I'm going to use the what if approach. What if your organisation could go beyond its expected financial performance, if staff were happy and thriving, if people were fighting to get into your organisation, and even when they left, they couldn't stop telling everyone how wonderful your organisation was because you've been truly diverse and inclusive. That is a compelling reason if ever I have heard on what if. Fabulous. Norma, your thoughts? I think absolutely from an EDI perspective, you know, I, we work with candidates every day. This is top of their agenda and the continuing war for talent isn't going away. It's getting fiercer every day. I know for me, it's really not about setting out the compelling arguments for why it's more for corporates to justify why not, because this is what candidates want and that's the kind of environment they want to work in. Compelling reasons that see us out of the show. I have to say it's been a fantastic conversation in such a short period of time, how much we have covered in some depth and some breadth. It's been wonderful. Norma Gillespie, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having us. I'm Manisha Patel. Thank you for all your thoughts. Thank you so much, Julia. And as always to all our listeners, thank you for joining us. I've been Julia Streets. Tune in again for another episode soon. Thank you. This episode of Diversity Podcast was produced by me, Kieran Yates, on behalf of Julia Streets Productions. Thanks to Cynthia Akinsania for her insights. You can find out more about the guests on this week's show on our website, diversitypodcast.com. And that's diversity with a C, not an S. Whilst you're there, you can also sign up to our newsletter for all our latest updates. All our episodes are available in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app. If you enjoy Diversity Podcast, remember to share on social media and give us a rating or review. It really helps promote the show to a wider audience. Finally, our Twitter handle is at DiversityPod. Thanks for listening.